And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about uh, proposals to establish a legal framework for people to make advance instructions on medical treatment in end-of-life situations. The hospital authority allows patients to submit advanced medical directives, or AMDs, in written form, and an increasing number have been doing so in recent years. But as there is no current legislation on the practice, there's concern that both the individuals and medical personnel could face legal and practical challenges. A bill to give uh, greater legal force to such directives is due for its first reading in the Legislative Council next week. And in future, patients may also be able to make advance instructions in digital form. Let us know what you think on this uh, topic. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us on 233-88-266-233-88266. And after 9.45, we'll find out more about developments in robotics with Dr Crystal Kwok of the uh, Hong Kong Science and Technology Parks Corporation. Uh, joining us uh, now for our main topic. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Aaron Lee, who's uh, co-chair of the uh, uh, Life Care Committee of the Hong Kong Medical Association. Good morning to you. Hello, morning. Good morning. Sorry, I should have said uh, the End of Life Care Committee of the uh, Medical Association. And also in our Admiralty studio, we have um, Alex Lam, chairman of the Hong Kong Patients' Voices. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, thank you both uh, for joining us. Uh, perhaps, uh, Dr. Lee, we can ask you first. Uh, w so what do you think of these uh, proposals to give a, uh, a legal framework uh, to such directives? Yes, uh, as I know, uh, this there will be a bill uh, to be passed uh, in the LegCo, and there will be discussion uh, starting from next week. And then, uh, I hopefully, this uh, will facilitate uh, more people to engage in the uh, advanced uh, medical directives in the future. Will it just up to the individual to say what he or she wants done to them, or will it have to be countersigned by relatives? Or, or, or what? Yeah, uh, according to the uh, formal discussions I have heard about this, uh, it's, uh, the, the directive will be signed by the patient himself or herself, and uh, there will be no or little involvement from the relative, except uh, when there is a witness uh, required to uh, maybe signing the uh, directive. And uh, one of the Maybe one of the relatives may be engaged. Well, what's going to happen then if uh, the person says, well, when I reach this stage, stop treating me, but the relatives are at the hospital saying, no, no, do everything you can, save him. Yeah. Uh, what's the, well, how, how's the doctor supposed to handle that? Yeah, um, exactly. This is uh, why we have to uh, establish uh, this advanced medical directive, uh, because uh, the majority say will be on the patient side and uh, it is will be legal binding that uh, the medical practitioner have to follow the order of the patient himself or herself and ignore the relatives uh, no i think uh, the relatives are important because uh, we have to explain to the relatives and then we have uh, to uh, tell them uh, what 
is the decision of the patient, uh, and then uh, they, there will be a compromise uh, in the uh, arrangement, I think. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, um, um, Alex Lamb, good morning. Hi. Good morning. Um, uh, this topic, uh, it raises various, uh, if you like, ethical, legal, medical issues. Um, um, you're uh, also a lawyer yourself. What, um, what are the difficulties uh, with the, the current situation as it is now? Well, the, um, <clears throat> in fact, the enactment of this law is to uh, avoid the um, complication when the uh, the patient himself or herself made a decision that um, uh, he expects the medical staff to do nothing when the day comes, especially when the uh, the patient's heart stops beating or stops uh, breathing. So um, in the current situation, uh, especially in the public hospital, that uh, when patient make the decision, uh, it can, it can be revoked by, by relatives, just as you say, that there, there may be some dispute or two camps of uh, children who have different views as to whether um, the, the patient should um, extend the life. But with this law, uh, not only that uh, the, the doctor will have to follow the advance directive made by the patient, if the medical staff ignore the directive and do something to prolong the, the life of the patient, it is against the law. There will be a, a, a penalty, including imprisonment. So it's, it, it, the new bill draw a, a clear line that uh, when it happens, uh, whether medical staff can do something or nothing or must do something. Uh, in regards to the, the relatives, uh, the law also um, set a very clear line that uh, on certain circumstances, the relative can do something and cannot do something. Mm. Uh, these, uh, I mean, these advanced medical directives, they have to be made in the presence of a doctor, right? Who, can, who will certify that the patient is in, in a sound state of mind when it's, when it's done? Yes. Um, the, 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 the advanced directives will, will require two witnesses. One is a medical doctor who will certify whether the, the patient making the advanced directive will have uh, the um, um, sound mind um, and mental status to sign the document. And another witness, and of course including the doctor, will be uh, independent, which means that uh, none of them will have any financial interest if the, the patient passed away, it, it, it means uh, if, if the doctor and the, the other witness uh, is a beneficiary um, under will or insurance policy or other situation that the passing of the patient will, will give them some sort of a benefit, they cannot be the, the witness. Mm -hmm. So uh, the law expects that uh, those uh, witnessing the, the signing of the surveillance directive uh, will be totally independent and for the benefits of the, the patient when signing this directive because uh, the seriousness of this directive will be um, very high because uh, the patient will expect the medical staff to do nothing uh, when the day comes so, uh, to prolong the life. So these directives then, are they all negative in the sense of when, I, when this happens, don't do anything? They're not positive, like... Do everything you can. Spare no expense. They're not uh, driving for more treatment. 
Well, un- un- under normal circumstances, if the patient didn't say anything, didn't give any um, directive, then the medical staff would do certainly do everything right. to mm. prolong the life of the patient. Mm. So it's only uh, the other way round when the patient says, "I don't want to be brought brought back from this." What yes. sort of circumstance would that apply? Yeah. Uh, applied what? Sorry. So when when the patient is making this declaration, he's going to say, "If my heart stops beating, or uh, there's no light in my eyes, or what kind of situation?" Which well, well, the situation will be that uh, the the, uh, the medical staff will will stop doing anything uh, to prolong their life. But it doesn't mean that uh, you don't give them. Well, if the patient is still alive, it doesn't mean that you you stop uh, feeding them or um, do something to to shorten the life. It is certainly against the law, uh, mm-hmm. even in the new bill that uh, it would be against the law. Mm-hmm. But but if the patient <laughs> made a directive that uh, uh, it is a witness and um, the doctor knowing that. Uh, the patient has made a decision, and you should stop doing anything because it would be against the law. Uh, that uh, if you do something which would normally make the patient suffer by uh, certain injection of medicine, electric shock, or some meaningless uh, treatment that will hurt the patient, uh, so it would be against the law of uh, common assault or. Uh, uh, um, uh, assaulting the the patient with intent, so it, it ha- have to be very careful when um, knowing that uh, the patient has uh, such a decision. Mm. Uh, Doctor Lee, I mean, we were only talking about certain types of treatment, right? Right. For instance, uh, CPR and um, um, uh, to reviving uh, patients. Um, so, uh, is it, I mean, is there a, a lot of concern within the medical? community about these kind of situations where uh, you know things might t- turn out as might not turn out as the patient hoped or as the medical staff hoped uh, actually i think uh, on the contrary the medical professional will be supportive of the bill mm. because uh, uh, not only the doctors uh, but i think the fire service uh, department uh, staff including the ambulance men will be involved because uh, they are the first people to reach the patient, usually maybe in the institution or maybe at home. And when they arrive, uh, if they uh, uh, see that there is an advanced medical directive uh, being uh, issued, and and then uh, they may stop the uh, life uh, sustaining procedure immediately. And then uh, when they, maybe the patient uh, is not mentally fit for uh, consent, then when the patient was sent to the hospital, then the medical staff may uh, read about the, the directive and then uh, act according to the patient's uh, order. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> I think what you're describing there is if someone is in an institution yeah. and they've recorded that uh, demand or requirement mm. uh, with, the, with the staff there, but when it's an ambulanceman turning up someone in the street or at home, how, how will he know about the directive? Yeah, uh, usually at home, I think uh, they will place the directive. Uh, it, it will be a hard copy uh, attached. Uh, usually, it, in the current situation, uh, before the bill was passed, there, will, there is a hard copy of the directive. And then the patients say uh, he may just place the directive at a 
uh, maybe uh, stick it on the refrigerator. So mm. uh, when the ambulance men arrive, they will see the directive on the wall or on the refrigerator, and then they will stop the life-sustaining procedure. But in the institution, uh, uh, currently, when uh, if there is, a, say, a DNA CPR order uh, being signed by the patient, then uh, there will be a special pocket uh, of uh, document being uh, attached to the uh, patient, and then uh, the staff will uh, of the institution will bring up the bag to the ambulance uh, staff. And then they, when they see, oh, there is an order from the patient or a directive from a the patient, then we uh, stop the uh, life-sustaining procedure. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I, I can still see gaps yeah, in yeah. the sense that someone is knocked down in the street yeah, yeah. and the ambulance turns up. Unless he carries it with him, um, people won't know. Yeah. Uh, another thing is uh, if it is in the outdoor situation, uh, then uh, in the other places, uh, other countries, they will uh, place a medical uh, bracelet and then uh, they will attach the directive on the bracelet. And then the, the staff will check on the body, oh, there is a bracelet, and then they saw the uh, directive and then they will also uh, do the same thing. That, that leads me to another very interesting area. <laughs> what has been the experience in, uh, in other countries? How, do, how have they yeah. been dealing with this? Yeah, uh, I I really don't know uh, a lot about the overseas experience, but uh, I I know it is uh, already uh, well established in some of the countries because uh, my, some of my colleagues are returning from other countries like uh, Australia or maybe in the uh, from the US. They told uh, they told me that uh, they have already signed the directive uh, long before they come back to Hong Kong, and then I think uh, we we can. Uh, uh, have more uh, scenario case discussion uh, and also the experience sharing from the foreign countries as well. Yeah, Alex, mm. have you got any information about that? Um, <clears throat> I, I don't have any um, information about what um, people are doing in the foreign countries. But in the, the bill, that uh, it's, um, it sets out a, a room for um, uh, electronic form of uh, directive being perhaps a place in the uh, central uh, system. Yeah. In the uh, e-health e platform, that kind yeah. of thing, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, so if um, it allows, uh, because there's no um, establishment of this uh, system yet, but the new bill allows this to happen, so that uh, if the, the patient's cell phone contains a uh, medical record in uh, electronic form, and people get access to this phone, if they can uh, open the phone, I don't know, they can check the, if uh, the patient has this, this kind of a directive. But in a situation that uh, we see people uh, falling down on the street, uh, there's no point to uh, check his cell phone or check his wallet. You do something to save his life. Uh, there's no time for do something else. So by doing this, um, of course, it seems that uh, you are violating the, the patient's uh, directive. But um, you, you, if you have uh, no knowledge, knowledge of this, uh, there's a statutory defense uh, to, to allow um, people who has um, um, done something on the patient uh, disregarding the, uh, the directive because um, we don't know. Right. Mm. So uh, reasonably not knowing... Uh, is, a, is a statutory defence. I think that, that that sounds reasonable. That 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 is 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 in the new bill. If, as a member of, if a were for a member of Legco, 
examining this bill, are they going to want information about what happens in other jurisdictions? I, I don't know. I, I'm not a member of the LESCO. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm not either. <laughs> but, I was a candidate, but, but I didn't win. But this, yeah. this, it, this, it, yeah, it is this, an established, it's an established principle, isn't it? And, and number of parts of the world, including Singapore, I think, Singapore, Australia, Canada, England, the the US was mentioned. So yes, mm. I, I think the uh, the bill is not new. Mm. It is mm. a combination of uh, discussion for about six, seven years, maybe longer than this mm. time, that uh, uh, there's no dispute as to how we make this law. Basically, uh, in the, the um, consultation period, um, most of the views are the same. Just that uh, we have been waiting for so many years and, um, and suddenly in, in November this year, it becomes a bill and uh, we, we, we cannot say happy to see this, but uh, we because it's, it's about human's life, uh, but mm. it is something that uh, we expect uh, <laughs> to do so that patients will, um, will have um, dignity mm. when the day comes that uh, people will not uh, see them suffer mm. and um, to achieve a meaningless prolongment of uh, life because, uh, let's say, if, if the uh, line-sustaining process is done, it will only prolong the, the life when the patient is in coma state and uh, will continue suffering. It, it will not be good for the patient. Okay. Uh, there's a, a comment here from a listener. Uh, Michael says, uh, Hong Kong has this problem when doctors do not give sufficient amount of pain relief medicines like morphine to patients who are receiving end-of-life treatment because they fear that uh, it would kill the patients. But the problem is uh, these patients are dying and they want to die with dignity and die without pain. Um, do you have any... any uh, uh, any comments on that, um, Dr. Lee? Uh, yes, because uh, I, I work in the public ho- sector, and uh, actually in my hospital there's a palliative uh, care unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, because of our advancing uh, age of the population, uh, I think it is essential not only to take care of the people's uh, quality of life, but also the quality of the end of uh, life care. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the pain relief is uh, one of the major issues. Uh, as you know, in uh, other countries, uh, people can sue doctors for not doing good for the pain control. Uh, this is important. And so the use of morphine, of course, uh, it should be uh, thoroughly discussed with the patient about the side effect and, uh, because it will be uh, suppressing the uh, respiratory uh, effort of the patient. Before, beside the uh, 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 pain relief, but uh, if the uh, if the patient agrees or the relative also agree, and then uh, usually this will be administered. Yeah. Have any of the churches, major religions, uh, jumped into the debate on this? Uh, not not really. I I know of. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Because some uh, religions are sort of yeah. sanctity of life, almost at any. At any cost, yeah. Um, you've got to keep the person alive. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, this is an interesting point of uh, pointing at the religion because uh, beside uh, this uh, about the end of life care, sometimes uh, people believe in certain religion, uh, just like the Jehovah Witness. Uh, right, Jehovah's Witness. They, they won't yes. give the blood transfusion to the patient. 
right. to in in order to sustain life. But uh, this is a spe- very special issue. Uh, I, I think uh, it's not uh, very much related to this directive uh, bill. Yeah. No, because in, in the cases that are more controversial is when yeah. a parent is saying, "No, you can't give my child a blood transfusion," whereas yeah. the child, of course, is not old enough or competent to make uh, this kind of declaration for themselves. Yeah, but uh, this bill, I think, uh, is more concerned with the people with uh, age above eighteen. So uh, yes, yeah. Uh, so it will be uh, more about the end of life care. I think, yeah. Mm. I mean, as we know, we're living with a, an aging population now, so is the, this issue is becoming, I guess, more urgent to deal with. Yeah. Mm. I think uh, if this bill were passed and then uh, maybe the next step will be we are uh, looking forward to where is the place of death. Beside, because uh, many uh, scenarios, many cases we saw, uh, the patient was rushed to the hospital and then they were certified at the hospital, especially in the accident emergency department. But uh, if uh, with the agreement and uh, after the thorough discussion with the public, maybe the place of death, some people will choose will be at home or maybe at the institution where the condition may be better for them. Yes, especially we talked about dignity. So to be in bed at home, surrounded by relatives and Mm. not in pain uh, as a package, Mm. and then uh, the time comes and you just slip away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This this is a really uh, very practical uh, problem, yeah, in the future, yeah. I did see some figures actually, and it seems that an increasing number of people have been, uh, um, uh, you know, asking for these uh, AMDs and refusing treatment like CPR. Um, it's uh, the figures I saw were the number of uh, CPR refusals had gone from. 325 in 2013 to uh, more than uh, 1,700 in 2021. Do, do, do we know what, what is the reason for that? And I think uh, it, it will be the job of the uh, geriatrician mainly because uh, we saw a lot of patients coming in uh, from the institution. Uh, they are, when my, I graduated uh, in the 90s, the oldest people I saw usually would be 70 or 80. But now we are seeing people with the age of 90s or even 100. So uh, you see uh, see the profile of the whole population is changing. And then uh, I think uh, uh, one day uh, uh, this DNA CPR order will be more uh, widely used, uh, especially with the help of the doctors in the community. Main in the institution is mainly the CGET, uh, the community geriatric assessment team. The doctors will go to the institution from the hospital to see the patient there, and then they may lobby the patient to, uh, if the condition is too worse, maybe uh, some terminal illness like the cancer cases or the chronic renal uh, uh, disease patient or the heart failure patient, they may uh, discuss with the patient and then the patient will sign the DNA CPR order there. At what mm. age should a person make such a decision and a declaration? Because yeah. obviously people do decline mentally later. Yeah, um, I think uh, it's not really about the age. Uh, it's really about the, D- 
disease uh, progress because uh, sometimes the disease may happen even in in an earlier age. Uh, I recall uh, seeing a lady uh, age of 65, but uh, she has a very aggressive progression of the Alzheimer's disease. So, uh, so much so that it is almost the late stage at the presentation because there's a very heavy genetic loading. So uh, sometimes you saw a patient with a very, uh, uh, really approaching the end of life care, even at an early age. Uh, so there may be a, a point to discuss with the patient oh, uh, uh, and the relative about uh, making the advanced directive decisions. Mm. Yeah. Okay, uh, we're going to have to take a break now, and I think uh, we have to say uh, thank you and uh, cheerio to uh, Dr. Aaron Lee, who's a co-chair of the End of Life Care Committee of the Hong Kong Medical Association. Thanks very much. Um, uh, Alex Lam is going to stay with us in our Admiralty studio for a little longer. We'll be joined by another guest uh, after the news. We're going to take a short break for a news summary and, and a couple of announcements. A quick look at the weather. A fine and uh, dry during the day. The outlook uh, still fine tomorrow. Uh, temperature difference over the new territories between day and night will be relatively large. Cloudier midweek. Uh, it's currently 23 degrees, humidity 60%. New summary with Ben Che. Hamas has said it's seeking to extend the four-day truce with Israel that's seen dozens of hostages released from Gaza in exchange for Palestinian prisoners. After a phone call between U.S. President Joe Biden and the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, both men agreed they'd continue working to secure the release of all hostages. Three students of Palestinian descent have been shot and injured in the U.S. state of Vermont. The Burlington police chief said two of the victims were in a stable condition, while the third had suffered much more serious injuries. New Zealand's new centre-right government has been sworn in at a ceremony in Wellington. The National Party won October's elections but needed the support of two smaller right-wing parties. And authorities in Sierra Leone say they have pushed rebel soldiers who attempted to break into a military armory back to the outskirts of the capital. Gunfire was heard during the afternoon coming from one of the suburbs of Freetown. I'll have more news at 10. The government has announced proposals on improving governance at the district level. The chief and deputy chief secretaries for administration will personally lead and coordinate district governance. People of different experiences and professions who are familiar with district affairs may enter district councils through various channels. District councils will focus on district affairs and collect and reflect public views to better serve the people. Improve district administration, build a better community. Scammers are everywhere. If an unknown caller claims to be a law enforcement officer, even if they have your personal information, you should never transfer money or disclose your bank account information, especially any passwords. Some online scammers may pretend to be lovers and investment experts. At the beginning of the investment, you might earn a little, but the scammers will eventually take all your money. When in doubt, call the police anti-scam helpline, 1822. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 and have your say. 
Welcome back to Back Chat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And we're going to uh, continue our discussion this morning on our main topic, which is on uh, proposals to uh, set up uh, a legal framework for people to make advanced uh, instructions on medical treatment in uh, end-of-life situations. Um, um, still with us is uh, Alex Lam, who's uh, chairman of Hong Kong uh, Patients Voices. And uh, also uh, joining us now is uh, Dr. Tam Yat Hong, who's a partnered doctor with the uh, NGO Forget Thee Not. Uh, Dr. Tam, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, so, so, your, uh, so, so the NGO Forget Thee Not, it, it works uh, with people and uh, sort of uh, um, end-of-life situations, um, planning for funerals. Uh, um, uh, we were talking before the break as well about, uh, uh, about place of death and, um, and sort of, you know, dying at home. That kind of, so um, let me ask you then first, uh, w what do you think about the, these proposals that we now have uh, uh, to put a, a legal framework around uh, advanced uh, medical notices? Yeah, the legislation and the proposal will be very useful for mm. us as the um, doctor in the community who need to um, face uh, different people who may prepare for the end of life and also start to know about the advanced directive. Um, that's how I work with the NGO um, for Get Me Not, um, that they, they would identify people who understand um, the advanced directive through their promotion and education, and then I can help them to explain and discuss what would be the device directive and in what condition that can be used. But finally, um, usually after signing document, we have problem about um, the practical problem. When in the situation that the, the people who sign the document require to execute the document, how can it be executed? Uh, usually we rely on the original copy. That is usually the only valid copy uh, we sign in the community. And then in case they need it in the, at home or sometimes in those residential care homes, someone needs to help them to show the document to the relevant party, like the um, ambulance man who came uh, for rescue them for emergency care or to transferring them to hospital, then very likely if they don't have the valid document uh, that can be recognized by the ambulance man or by the hospital, um, they will start the cardiopulmonary resuscitation. That may not be what the client want um, as they have signed the um, advanced directive. So it is how the bill, if it is clear, uh, it will be the first step to help us to make the document uh, that can be recognized by the these very important people who may, when they see the people, they cannot tell their view or their, their preference about the requirement of the resuscitation. They then they can respect their decision, okay? Um, keep the, the people with that autonomy and dignity um, not to give the unnecessary treatment for them. So there's the whole point for, for the beef. Right. Uh, Dr. Tam, the only uh, situation here is, is the default arrangement for any medical practitioner is to, is to save the patient. Is yes. It? 
Yes, yeah. obviously. I, oh, I say yeah. obviously. Yeah. Therefore, it, it must can only apply, kick in, requirement to obey this directive can only kick in if the present, the existence of the directive and its contents are known. Yeah, if there's no valid, valid advanced directive that we can see. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah the, the default is we have to rescue the people. Right. So then <laughs> there's there's a gap, isn't there? I mean, in in some situations, the, the, the medical personnel will not know of the existence of such a directive. What about the idea of bracelets that have been mentioned earlier in the in the show? People wearing a bracelet which says clearly in what circumstances they don't want to be uh, treated. Yeah, but but that has to really have some um, legal framework to support this kind of uh, like a bracelet, or even some people think about uh, making that a tattoo or the body. But that has to be have some legal framework to support it. Right now, we can only use the signed document. Um, that has to be the true original copy that we can use them. Or another thing would be that signed by the um, doctor in the uh, public hospital. Then when when people transfer to the hospital, they can recognize that copy in their electronic system. But that's only in the public hospital, not in the community. Right. Will, it, will there be a central registry of all these uh, declarations? Yes, that would be great. Um, but at this stage, uh, where we look through the, the legislation and the, the, the bill, um, they, they, they seem to have the plan, but um, that's not yet uh, available in the near future, I think. Mm -hmm. um, um, Alex Lam, um, what about a situation whereby um, a patient uh, signs an advanced medical directive, say they don't want uh, resuscitating um, uh, if, when the time comes, and then they change their mind? Um, uh, do, do you know of cases like that? I mean, and could cases like that have uh, particularly difficult implications? Well, uh, <clears throat> because this is only a bill, which there's not yeah. a law yet. Yeah. But I, uh, there's uh, um, uh, uh, um, procedure in the, the new law or uh, mm -hmm. mechanism that uh, is what they call cautious making, easy revoking. Yes. So uh, by mm. joining the or issuing the directive, there's a very strict requirement who is be the witnesses, um, what condition, whether this document has to be signed by some people, etc. But by revoking this uh, directive, it's very easy. You just give a verbal instruction to the medical staff or people you know that are destroying the document, uh, informing the, uh, the central restoration, uh, and that's it. Uh, because uh, by changing your mind, that means you want to uh, save your life. There's, there's no point to stop you from making this decision because uh, it's, it's natural that uh, people should be entitled to enjoy their life. In practical cases, are people going to be in institutions when they make these directives? Well, you, you have to ask Dr. Tam if he has the experience. Uh, uh, well, from my point of view, I think it's yes, because uh, by making this directive, a uh, patient will usually have a certain kind of a medical condition uh, when doctor or the patient uh, 
see that uh, the live or, uh, or days accounting. So the purpose of this uh, uh, directive is to make, make things uh, come smooth. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Tam, in, in your experience, uh, are most uh, such patients uh, in institutions already? Oh, yes. Um, so my experience as the visiting medical officer for, mm. for some of the elder homes, uh, actually the situation would be the same as in the community. They can sign the advance directive um, with two witnesses. One would be the um, registered a medical doctor, another would be a um, witness not related to any any um, um, benefit yeah. from, from the patients, um, at least not the beneficiary of the will. Um, the problem would be, um, first of all, we need a doctor to go to the elderly home um, because they would be rather difficult to, to go out. Another issue would be as they need to go to the, stay in the elderly home, many of them may not have the mental capacity to sign the advance directive. That will be simply too late to do it. Okay. Many of them suffering from um, rather severe dementia. Um, that will be rather difficult to, have to ask them to consider different situations that the advance directive will be executed and also actually to emerge at that point at the very end what would they want. So um, preferably I would tend to help people sign the advance directive as early as possible. Uh, in the committee, especially when they have the family members to be with them. So even they, after signing the advance directive, they can ask someone to help them to keep the advance directive or at least to, to let someone um, very close to them to know where they put the original right. copy. But how, how, does a, how does a doctor uh, raise this uh, with a patient without alarming them, really? You say, look, <laughs> you know, you're on your way out, sport. You, do you want one of these directives? Um, that's going to frighten patients, isn't it? You mean the timing to initiate this discussion? <laughs> well, yeah, whenever you, it's initiated, it, it's not going to be easy. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're not easy and also very often require very repetitive discussion with the patient, also the relatives. Okay. Um, ideally, that should be as early as possible, but usually um, the, the condition I encounter would be they start to feel they, their general health decline. They also see people who um, die in hospital, um, receive those treatment, they also think not necessary, so they start to consider for themselves. That would probably would be the commonest um, point of time that we start the discussion. Do you find that many people are worried about uh, about dementia and the effects of dementia as they get older and uh, that maybe they've seen uh, other relatives uh, suffering from the condition and then decide that, uh, you know, that would be a reason that they wouldn't want to be uh, revived? Yes, very mm. common. Um, mm. I've seen people with dementia or with terminal illness like cancer, so they, they start to think about themselves. Mm. Uh, I just want to add one point yeah. that uh, because I have to uh, correct what Dr. Lee uh, said earlier that uh, 
the law not only applies to uh, people who are of uh, 18 years or above, it also applies to uh, people with uh, mental uh, illnesses, uh, lack of the mental status or minor, so that their relatives uh, or responsible person uh, state in the law that uh, they can make decisions, but it has to be certified by two other doctors, including one specialist. So this is important um, decision uh, made for the patient, but not by himself or herself, but by their relatives. Mm. Right, if they're mm. incapable. Uh, yes. Yes, the, the relatives is ca uh, capable, of course, yes. Mm. Mm. Okay. All right, then, well... Uh, we're out of time for this part uh, of this morning's programme, but um, thank you very much uh, to both of our guests there. Uh, that was um, Alex Lam, you just heard, the chairman of uh, Hong Kong Patients Voices, and also Dr uh, Tam Yat Hong, who's um, a partner doctor with the NGO Forget the Not. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. I'm Secretary for Housing, Winnie Ho. Happy birthday to RTHK's 95th anniversary. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. With Hong Kong. And for the final part of this morning's programme, we're going to hear uh, more about uh, developments uh, in robotics. Um, a lot has been going on involving the uh, Hong Kong uh, Science and uh, Technology Parks. Uh, uh, we're joined uh, on the, the line now by uh, Dr Crystal Fock, who's uh, head of the uh, STP platform at uh, Hong Kong Science and Technology Parks uh, Corporation. Um, Crystal Fock, good morning to you. Hi, good morning. Uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Uh, uh, so you've been uh, running this uh, project, uh, Robots Everywhere, um, for, for uh, much of this year, um, bringing in um, uh, operators uh, from uh, various uh, different, uh, different parts um, uh, 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 let me just um, let me just see this. So, so the the robots everywhere program aims to recruit to enterprises developing uh, smart city and sustainable innovation technologies and providing them with uh, adoption opportunities at the uh, science park to accelerate the implementation and innovation of technology in the market. So, um, how's it been going? Oh, it's going well because uh, we just started this program uh, three months ago. So uh, we have identified five areas that we would like to try if robotics could help. That includes the indoor cleaning, outdoor cleaning, indoor petrol, carpet petrol, and non-mowing. So right now we already test out more than 20 different solutions. And I do believe that uh, at least some of those will be fully adopted by Hong Kong Science and Technology Park. Mm. And at the same time, we also want to promote all these uh, possibility to the industry, especially to the facility management. Mm. Mm. Uh, and um, a, a lot of these uh, innovations are actually being used uh, uh, within the Science Park, right, as part of the, uh, the Smart uh, Campus Challenge. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Because. Uh, Mostly when we would like to buy some new solution, it's not easy for us to get fully confident of it. So we have uh, set up different kind of scenarios. So one example is for indoor patrol, because uh, for anyone that they are conducting the patrolling uh, task, uh, actually they have to identify uh, what are the uh, defects or suspicious persons, something like that. 
So within within our validation period, we also set up all this scenario for our robots, so they have to perform and show us the results. So I believe that this is one good way for even the industry further adopt the solution because every site, they may have their own demand. So once they test out the robot in a more systematic way, it's easier for them to really go for work. So, so this is robots uh, engaged in uh, security operations? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. How about the private sector companies? Are they interested, have they shown interest in developing such robots? Oh, exactly. uh, we have received more than a uh, hundred inquiries just within that a few hours because once they uh, look at the robot in action, uh, they know that uh, how it could be related to their property and their daily task. That's why they also have a lot of interest in, uh, first of all, understand the capability of different robots and then how to calculate like the return on investment and also how their FM uh, personnel should work together with robots in the future. Right. I, I was thinking more of de who's developing these robots. Uh, we have more than uh, 10 companies joining uh, this program. So mostly uh, they are uh, in Hong Kong, but some of them are uh, coming from China or other um, overseas market. So I believe that uh, this is the trend no matter in Hong Kong or somewhere else, because um, for example, facility management is a uh, labor-intensive industry. But right now, it's not easy to recruit all these labor. So in order to invite more people to join in the industry, we should relax their work through robotics. And that's why I think this is a global trend uh, in general. So you think then that you, you see this as helping people already in those sectors do their job more easily? Yes. Rather than... Yes. Because uh, sometimes when robots come in, uh, people lose their job. <laughs> uh, actually, it's not easy for people to lose their job. <laughs> because uh, when we are testing the robot, uh, anyway, they have certain limitations. But, uh, for example, if you have to do all the patrolling just by oneself, it spends a lot of time. But what if the robot will do a general patrol and then identify the areas that human has to go and fix it. So that's why the human doesn't have to walk so many different stories. They just wait until they need to really go and fix the problem. So this is some way to ease the uh, task for human, but still uh, the human can work closely with the robot. Can you see this uh, ha happening in residential estates? Uh, not yet in uh, Hong Kong, but uh, I would say that's why Science Park take the first step, because uh, we also want to work on this model as a reference to the industry together with the government. So I believe that in the upcoming uh, five to six months, when we work out the uh, mechanism between the human-machine interaction, uh, we will uh, try again to promote all this to the uh, government uh, together with the industry. And I believe that uh, they will feel quite um, amazing when they know that the work could be uh, much more simplified.
You, you mentioned robot cleaners. They seem to be becoming a, more of a common sight. I can, I can think of uh, uh, several shopping malls where they're, uh, you know, com it's common to see them now. Yeah, yes. Mm. And uh, sometimes you may not be able to see that because the, the difficulty is to recruit the workers during the lifetime. So uh, right now, even though we recruit all these cleaning robots, uh, we actually assume that they could help to clean a large area uh, during the night time because even though the uh, uh, people today, they don't want to work uh, uh, when they really want to get rest. So I believe that this is a um, upcoming uh, real demand soon. And actually some of the shopping malls in China, they already fully uh, deploy all these cleaning robots. So it actually improves the quality of life for people exactly. that, they don't have to work a night shift. Yeah, yeah, because no one really wants to go into that shift, but still we need the, someone to clean up uh, the whole area. Yeah, I mean, there, there is always this concern, though, isn't it, that, that Mike uh, alluded to before, and I guess it goes all the way back to the Industrial Revolution when you, you invent machines which, uh, which take over the, the, the work of people. There's always this fear that it's going to be uh, like unemployment and, and people out of work and mm. what have you. But, it, but it, it's, it, it's a question of using them smartly, isn't it, you're, you're, you're saying, to basically, basically to do the routine work and, um, and, and you know, free, up, free up people to do more interesting things. Exactly. And also, it is one good way to upskill the uh, people that who are really actually doing all these tasks today. Because uh, one interesting thing is, uh, right now, they are uh, really workers because they have to clean up the floor, they have to uh, uh, do the patrol. But later on, imagine that we will name it as operator. Because... Uh, they know how to operate the robot, not only one robot, but the whole team of robots. And also they know that how to really fix and maintain all these uh, robot teams. Then we should not name it as worker at all. They should be upgraded as an uh, operator. Which countries in the world are most advanced in the use of robots in this kind of work? Uh, I won't say most advanced, but uh, for example, in Singapore, there are a lot of robotic solutions. And also China, they work uh, quite closely in different areas. Even right now, they use robots for delivery, something like that. So I believe that uh, Hong Kong could be also the quite top tier uh, uh, city that able to leverage the robotic solution to upskill our working population. At the moment, how, how, how can ordinary members of the public, listeners to this show, how can they see what's going on, what's possible? Uh, I think most people already see quite a lot of robots for disinfection and uh, food uh, catering, something like that. But uh, since uh, we are launching the facility management right now, and I believe that this is a uh, upcoming trend, and also for construction industry, because quite a lot of tasks within the construction site is so dangerous. So the uh, if no matter the government and also the construction industry council uh, keep pushing it quite a lot, and. That's why I think construction and facility management will be uh, quite uh, heavily adopting the robotic solutions. Right, because a robot can go into a situation which would be dangerous yeah. potentially for a person, uh, but yeah. not, not for the robot. Yes, mm. exactly. Mm. <laughs> how... Um 
autonomous are these uh, robots now? I mean, are, are any of them sort of uh, paired with uh, artificial intelligence? Uh, most of them already are quite advanced to incorporate with the uh, artificial intelligence. Mm. And also uh, for some of the tasks, uh, we actually don't prefer that autonomous. We prefer the uh, operator or the workers work together with a robot, like a teleoperation, mm. because uh, the experience and domain knowledge from human is so valuable. So we hope to train up all these task force and work together with the robot. Mm. It will be even much safer and also more reliable. Mm. So you don't see a danger of the robots taking over yet? Oh, yes, right, yeah. And I think that uh, some of those uh, actually quite reliable robots, for example, the uh, drone, because they could get access to some area even though human cannot get access. For example, rescue is a one good uh, usage of the drone as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I know you've got another, a number of other projects coming up as well, right? The, uh, the smart navigation with location-based services, uh, um, edutainment and experience uh, center, so and, and green tech for energy. Um, yeah, there's a lot, lot a, a lot of uh, you know exciting projects there. Yes, come in soon, because uh, if you realize that uh, more than 80% of data actually related to location, so that's why no matter for uh, green energy, sustainability, or entertainment, something like that, uh, the location-based uh, data is so valuable. So hopefully in the upcoming challenge, uh, we could receive some uh, innovative ideas and exciting uh, ideas that we can really go for a proof of concept and then uh, further adopt by different uh, end users. Mm. And will this be commercially viable for the makers of the robots? Oh, sure, sure, because uh, you always want to know where is your robot. (laughs) So the uh, location-based data is help them to navigate and then show them that they are working and working well. So all these are actually exciting uh, uh, things for uh, our teams that we are really uh, operating the robot. Okay. Brave new world. Yeah, yes. Uh, Yeah, really interesting. Thanks very much uh, for joining us uh, on this morning's programme. That's Dr. Crystal Fock, head of uh, STP Platform at uh, Hong Kong Science and Technology Parks uh, Corporation. Um, Thanks to our listeners and thanks very much uh, to you, Mike, uh, today's uh, guest presenter. First bit was a bit grim, wasn't it? (laughs) It was a fairly uh, fairly heavy subject, but um, but one, of course, has to be... um, it has to be sort of faced by everybody. Really. By all of us. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the time right. comes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So um, we've got a news summary coming up in just a moment, uh, followed by Brunch with Noreen.